This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Today on This is Hell, the coronavirus was caused by capitalism. Not that you are going to hear that in the more establishment media outlets. None of the news networks that is covering COVID-19 24-7 is ever going to mention a lot of the factors that led to this plague. They're not going to mention deforestation. Instead, the media and government officials are thanking benevolent corporations like McDonald's that incentivizes deforestation when they're not getting good press and lip service for donating 400,000 of the less protective KF94 medical masks to healthcare workers. Not the N95s that are also needed, but the kind you're more likely to see people wearing out on the street. And for that price, McDonald's history of deforestation, which is the kind that led to a bat infecting a scaly anteater, which was then purchased at a Wuhan market and suddenly the world has a pandemic all because of the kind of deforestation, the kind of capitalism that McDonald's pursues. Yes, that's how integrated and interconnected the world is today by capitalism. Someone buys a live animal at a market in the relative heartland of China, an animal whose scales are alleged to make men or give men sexual prowess and make women's skin more, more beautiful while being a delicious animal to eat as well and as fast as any good any good any product travels around our world dominated by globalization today suddenly we're all sick or about to be sick or sick and we don't even know it locked away in our homes looking changing from our outdoor clothes to our indoor clothes when we do go out and come back in wearing masks to protect us from the invisible and potentially deadly threat Yes, capitalism and globalization caused the pandemic, and you will never hear that on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, but you will hear it today when we speak with historian Andrew B. Liu, who wrote the N Plus One magazine article, Chinese Virus World Market. The best safeguard against the novel coronavirus is the ability to voluntarily withdraw oneself from capitalism. You can find that article at nplusonemag.com, and he's assistant professor of history at Villanova University, where his research focuses on China, transnational Asia, and the history of capitalism. He's currently writing a book with the working title, T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, anything new by you? Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention this. Uh, over the weekend, uh, we shot some footage that uh, might end up in a national TV commercial, and I did my very, very best uh, to hide a copy of the Communist Master Manifesto somewhere in the background of uh, the footage, but I don't think that clip got used. I'm really <laughs> bummed. That's the only thing I had to look forward to all weekend, and uh, that clip's not getting used. So, so they were shooting a commercial in your home? Uh, I don't want to get too much into <laughs> it. Uh, we were making footage that might end up being in a commercial. I uh, can't say any more. I'll tell you off, Mike. Uh, but I did my best to uh, hide some more fun things for me in the background of that commercial. <laughs> this week's question mail is, what are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins five This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words This Is Hell. As we are all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at Chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com. And you can actually find the This Is Hell subvertising stickers at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support, which is where you can find all of our merchandise, including the trucker cap, T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mugs, and the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive. And by the way, those This Is Hell subvertising stickers, they look great on your medical face mask that you will need to be wearing every time you go outside in the very near future. So order your masks and your subvertising stickers and make certain everyone around you knows how you feel about the pandemic by having the words, this is hell, on your mask. Alex, do you have any more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah, I got a bunch. Uh, Greg M. posted a meme that says, instead of wiping away your tears, you should wipe away the people who made you cry. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Uh, Carlos H. says, the syringes. What are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? Nathaniel T., who I miss, uh, wrote knives a little too lovingly. <laughs> Jesse W. says, my guillotine. Ladio says, hopefully not the same surface I'll be wiping up. Oof. Mike A. says, my junk. It's my fault for having this question, I suppose. <laughs> I'm getting those. What are you wiping down? Jack B. says, my hard drive. 
Greg G says, your mom. Okay, that's my fault. Uh, Mark C says, my rose-colored glasses, they have blood on them. <laughs> Steve C says, the UPS guy. <laughs> nice. Uh, Brian H. sent us a YouTube link to the Fugs song, Nothing. All right. Andre J. says, butts, with all the TP I hoarded. Martin F. says, wait, I'm supposed to wipe? Well, that explains the strange smell that follows me everywhere. <laughs> it is my fault for this question. Uh, similarly, my fault, Nikki says, that as. A couple more. What are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? Joshua J. says, the rich. With my cough, I'm more likely to find out their test result than get one myself. And finally, Dennis H. says, beer cans. All the beer cans. You know, I everybody really hates the fact that Charles Koch is going to be making a fortune off of the uh, coronavirus because he's a major, you know, producer or his companies are major producers of toilet paper in this country so if you really hate charles coke i gotta tell you just go out and get one of those attachments to turn your toilet in and do a bidet and you're you're set you're being anti-coke you're you're really really making a difference in this world alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again email us your answer to chuck at this is hell.com alex at this is hell.com post it at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. We told you so. This is how today marks my third week of sheltering in place with the love of my life, my girlfriend, my non-wife, my un-spouse. Today is our 21st day together in self-imposed lockdown. While the state of Illinois went to a sheltering in place strategy to curb the spread of the virus on March 21st, two Saturdays ago, me and my girlie locked ourselves up a bit earlier, nine days earlier, back on March 11th. This was after I canceled our March 6th This Is Hell Office Hours meet and greet. And I really, really miss those meet and greets a lot. I miss hanging out with people like Nate, who uh, Alex was just mentioning. Both times when I canceled office hours and when myself and my far more significant others shut ourselves in, both times I had people tell me we were being too careful, too cautious, too pessimistic, that we were falling for some kind of media hype. We first self-imprisoned because a co-worker of my girlfriend's had not reported to work that week, and his symptoms sounded suspiciously like COVID-19. You know, like all symptoms that anyone has today suddenly makes us think that they, or worse, I, have the virus. My girlfriend started getting a cough, her nose was running, she complained of a slight burning in her chest, and I think she had a fever. We don't know because thermometers suck. The last one we ever had, it always registered something less than 98 degrees, so I'm pretty sure it was telling us we were both clinically dead. I asked an assistant to my doctor which thermometer she would suggest. She told me, None of them work, and this one we use costs hundreds of dollars, and it doesn't always give a correct readout. Hey, market, the public demands an accurate, inexpensive thermometer. Can you supply one? Because in this time of pandemic, that would be really great if you could fill your religious mantra of supply and demand. We have no idea if my partner had coronavirus. She has horrible allergies, and I don't know if I have ever gone through a single day with her when she hasn't blown her nose or coughed. As we have no idea if we have coronavirus, had coronavirus, or are having a relapse of coronavirus until it's so bad we have to get tested and potentially be hospitalized where a ventilator may be awaiting us to save our lives or not, mostly not if you are in the U.S. and poor, definitely not, we are clueless as to our own personal health. These past three weeks sheltering in place have meant working at home. Yes, Alex and I come over to the studio above the depressingly shuttered Carrie's Lounge every morning to do the show. But the moment it ends, we both leave to head straight back to our homes, do the rest of work on our work on the following day's show. For me, it's only a block, maybe a five-minute walk, so I'm outdoors maybe ten minutes a day when traveling back and forth to work. Alex has a short drive or bike ride to South Evanston, but as we are essential workers in the press, it's cool, according to the governor. The rest of the time, however, we're back home, allowing work to enter where we live our lives away from work, the place where we actually enjoy life, our sanctuary from work, where someone else owns our time. We have now been forced to welcome, out of necessity, welcome work into our home, control over our time, let it slip right past our door, and command every moment. When your office is at home, you are always at work. And my girlie has always been at work for the last three weeks. Her company has to make a huge transition in order to have all their employees working from home. Unfortunately, the person who has to coordinate that nightmare is the person I live with, the person who I can hear every day getting very, very angry at her staff. 
Before we had this here studio and I had my office at home when we were in the midst of building a studio at my place before we were offered this amazing space up here from Peak. When I worked from home, I was always at work, even though this is what I would be would call my calling rather than work, my life's work, I would call this. I'm doing what I actually want to do, which is an amazing privilege. I was still always at work and it was dragging me straight to another nervous breakdown. For me, working out of home is maddening. When I did, I would shut my office door at the end of the workday and convince myself that work was locked away in that room and couldn't get out to haunt the rest of my day. But every time I walked by that door, I'd pop my head inside to see if someone had emailed or messaged me about something, some aspect of the show I was obsessing over. It was like a dead zone in that room, and it had appeared in my home, and I started fearing that space of our apartment. It's now what we call the lodge, that room. We call that room the lodge, a kind of library, office, den, guest room, entertainment center, whose acronym comes and spells out lodge. I like that room. It's where I hang out. It's very well heated in the winter and a refuge from the rest of our place, which can get cold up here on the third, on the top floor of a three-flat overlooking a park that allows the wind to rip straight through it and straight through our place, especially when it's cold. It's the room where I watch TV, go online for fun, read, get high, hang out. It's probably my favorite room in the house. It's a respite from the world outside that is infected with greed, hoarding, selfishness, you know the virus. Now, however, it's back to being my office and only my office, and that sucks. Now when I hang out there, I can't get my mind off of work. I mean, my mind is always kind on work. When I have an idea pop into my head for the show, I will immediately write it down. But in that room, I, I feel like I am at work always now, forced to be considering the show constantly, persistently, consistently, endlessly. And with nothing else on to distract me, I've been watching nothing but coronavirus coverage all day. Work has made the final conquest. This finally had a real excuse, a logic that you cannot deny, to allow your boss to root around your home and tell you how to lead your life even when you're not at the office. We've been sheltering in place for 21 straight days now, and this is just the beginning. Don't believe Senator Chuck Schumer, who said when the stimulus package was passed, this is the end of the beginning. This is only the beginning of the beginning, people. We will lose our spring. We won't have a spring this year. We will not be able to have a spring this year other than the one we watch happen from inside our homes, the one we watch through our windows. If we are lucky, we'll have some portion of the summer, but that's uncertain. Who knows, maybe the pandemic will outlast the funding for the stimulus, which ends at the end of the calendar year. We've only been inside a few weeks. Many of you may have been sheltering in place for a far shorter period of time. Some of you may not be doing so yet, but will likely be indoors for a while. In a few months, this three-week anniversary monologue may seem a joke compared to the three months we'll be commemorating on the summer solstice, which this year we are still on our personally imposed lockdown or a far more strict one enforced by armed agents of the government. On the summer solstice, it will truly feel every bit like the longest day of the year, We'll all be locked inside looking out at it and saying to ourselves, yet in unison, this is hell coming up on This Is Hell. Coronavirus is all capitalism's fault. Not that anyone here in the U.S. is going to hold it responsible. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry live from Late Capitalism, where we know... The price of everything and the value of nothing. This is hell. If we just wash our hands correctly, do social distancing, maybe wear a mask, sure, shelter in place too. If we just do all that stuff, problem and coronavirus solved. But what if this pandemic is not the result of only dirty hands, close talking, and too much personal contact? What if there's a bigger force behind this pandemic that nobody's considering in the establishment news media? Here to help us consider capitalism's role in creating and spreading the virus, historian Andrew B. Liu wrote the N Plus One magazine article, Chinese Virus World Market. The best safeguard against the novel coronavirus is the ability to voluntarily withdraw oneself from capitalism, which you can find at nplusonemag.com. There's also a direct link to it at the front page of our website. Andy is assistant professor of history at Villanova University, where his research focuses on China, transnational Asia, and the history of capitalism. He's currently working on a book with a working title, 
Tea War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. Welcome to This Is Hell, Andy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You write that for weeks, American news services referred to the disease as the Wuhan virus. Last month, the World Health Organization renamed the virus COVID-19 with the explicit goal of minimizing the social stigma of a name that referred to a specific place and by extension, a specific people. Not once to pay heed to international norms, conservative politicians in the U.S. continued to insist on the phrase Wuhan virus or Chinese coronavirus in a transparent effort to scapegoat and distract from their own catastrophic mismanagement of the worst public health crisis in recent American history. Andy, back in December 2016, we spoke with Viet Thanh Nguyen about his National Book Award-nominated work, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. During that conversation, Viet talked about how the Vietnam War is often referred to as only Vietnam and the stigma that can arise for associating a nation with and defining it only through the lens of war. By calling this the Chinese virus, and even though taking it for granted now that we know that uh, President Trump has moved away from that, but by calling this the Chinese virus, aside from leading to attacks and violence against Chinese Americans, what does it do to the popular public view of what China is when we associate it with, first and foremost, a virus? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's the, that's a loaded question. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways to go. I guess I would say that in the, when these politicians have tried to defend the usage of this, they've said they're not scapegoating the Chinese people, they're scapegoating the Chinese government, uh, which obviously doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't name viruses after governments, right? You name it after places and the people uh, by, who are associated with that place. So that has led, uh, like you said, to all sorts of incidents of anti-Asian American racism, Chinese American racism in the, U- in the U.S. I think more big picture, uh, something to look out for, something to be careful about is that what is Trump? What are the Republicans? How are the conservative? And perhaps also some Democrats as well, of course. What are they trying to do with this framing? Uh, you know, like you said, Trump has kind of, he's tried to back away, but, you know, in the, in the most Trumpian way of sort of wink, wink, you know, you know what I mean kind of way, uh, where his audience knows exactly what he's thinking, right? Um, in the long term, like, what is what is the goal here? This isn't just, I think, not, a, this, is, this isn't just about the coronavirus. I think that there's a potential that, Trump and, uh, you know, who knows what's going on in the White House, who's, who's really in charge. But, you know, there's, a, there's been an effort before the coronavirus to scapegoat China, uh, to target China, to try to cut off or de-link the United States economy from the Chinese economy uh, and to pin a lot of the blame for what is going wrong in the United States on the sort of evil, abstract, nefarious thing that's known as just China. Uh, so even before the coronavirus pandemic kind of, you know, panic started the last few weeks. I, my, I think my question is, you know, Trump says whatever he wants to say, and these Republican Congress people say whatever they want to say, but why were, why are some parts of the American public ready for that message, right? What prepared them to receive um, this idea that it's all China's fault, that China's responsible? Um, and uh, I think we have to take a serious look at all the different ways that the American media, American political discourse has framed China in a very demonizing way. And this isn't, and I don't also want to get into this trap of thereby kind of painting the Chinese government um, or the connections between the U.S. and the Chinese economy as angelic, right, and completely innocent. Um, One shouldn't have to choose between the two. The PRC government has many... um, there's, there's many reasons to criticize their response as well. In many ways, they're just as obfuscatory and uh, opaque and uh, sort of dismissive of their own citizens' lives as the United States as well. Um, so one shouldn't have to choose, but uh, certainly uh, it does seem like the United States government is trying to – it's a rhetorical device that in the long term is, I think, is, is going to be probably the electoral strategy of saying, you know, this isn't our fault, it's China's fault, and perhaps part of a broader – shift uh, of political and economic strategy uh, on the global stage. Uh, So I think those are some of the opening thoughts we should uh, keep in mind when we think about uh, the the scapegoating game. Two different nations who did a horrible job in reacting to the coronavirus, and they're both trying to blame one another and obfuscate their own responsibility to their own citizens. One of the things that you were mentioning in that, and your answer was, and I didn't write this down before, but you were mentioning this kind of wink-wink kind of thing when it comes (laughs) to China. 
This is the dog whistle part of the Trump administration, the Trump presidential campaign. Uh, well, first of all, what do you think is the message that's being sent when, you know, even before this, like you were saying, whether it was yeah. China on trade, whether it was China on climate change, what is the message of that dog whistle? And why is it so hard? And I, I can't I think it's just very difficult for the media to point out that that is a dog whistle and the message mm-hmm. that it sends. Uh, I think I think the dog whistle, you know, we could write like books about this, right? The way that right, right. Asian Americans and Chinese Americans and Chinese immigrants have been portrayed in U.S. history. Um, I think, I mean, you, you know, you could go back to the 19th century if you want, but more recently, I guess the 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 the, the image is that China is this giant thing, right? We talk about how big China is, how many people there are in China, and how authoritarian the government is. Um, there is, I think, an assumption that Chinese people, therefore, are sort of the tools of the Chinese government despite all sorts of evidence to the contrary, that lots of diaspora or people in China themselves have lots of criticism, disagreements with the government. Um, and then I think uh, I think most concretely, there is a sense of life in America and the American economy has not been doing well for decades, right? And, uh, the, you know, it's hard to understand why. I don't, you know, I don't understand why. And I, I you know, academics who try to study this all, all their life can't really point out exactly why. Uh, but, you know, so there's a, almost, there's this, weird comfort, right, in being able to pin it on a concrete, visible, you know, force, in this case would be, you know, Chinese, the Chinese government or the Chinese people. So I think there's a sort of scapegoating, there's a sense of that there's this global, not global necessarily, but this larger than life kind of incomprehensible thing out there that it penetrates into, just like popular culture, we think about, uh, you know, they took away our basketball games in the fall, they are taking over universities, they are, it's unfair that they're so good at the SAT uh, so all sorts of like popular culture, um, the popular popular culture representation of Asian Americans is always that, you know, this like this kind of harm, this kind of harmless quaint thing. Oh, they're all very nerdy and very good at making money, but it also has this dark side of uh, kind of portraying them as sort of um, this economic threat, right, to American, uh, to the American way of life. Um, and uh, why is it so hard to point out? I think um, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I, I, you know, I kind of scratch my head thinking about how the corporate media decides what it wants to say. But I think, I mean, I think for them, the corporate media, by being predominantly upper class, they they work with and live with uh, and uh, have a high high uh, esteem for uh, sort of overachieving Asian Americans. You know, like Andrew Yang, for instance, right? Um, and I'm not I'm not trying to like you know criticize Andrew Yang or anything um, as as a particular problem, but just to say that. They are sort of out of touch, perhaps, with the sort of classed way that they see the world versus the American public. And the attitude towards Asia is perhaps a symptom of that, right? Like they have imbibed this globalization Kool-Aid that it's only a good thing to have relations with China without thinking about how if you kind of unleash capital to do whatever it wants and kind of outsource all their jobs to cheap Chinese workers, uh, cheap, you know, cheap wage workers in China, that this actually... Um, um, has a deleterious effects for the majority of the American public, right? Uh, so, I mean, my, and my goal isn't to say, like, is to, is to sort of um, uh, justify this, uh, this sort of outrage. I think we, don't, we shouldn't default to a sort of nationalistic point of view. The, I guess the goal would be to think, to rethink, um, if, we are, if we are committed to a sort of internationalist perspective, we have to rethink what has gone wrong with, you know, globalization, as it was called 20 years ago, and is there a better way to think about an international solidarity, let's say, with between the average working American, the average working person in China, Asia, or elsewhere around the world? You write about the specific origins of the coronavirus within Wuhan, and you point out how they remain unclear. Quote, in February, mm-hmm. researchers announced that the virus could be traced back to a wild pangolin, which is a kind of scaly <laughs> anteater that people often mistake for a reptile, but it's actually a mammal, that was sold in the Hunan, or no, Huanan market and had yeah. originally been transmitted from a bat. This is currently just a working hypothesis, but if true, yeah. it would square with the theories about SARS and MERS and their original outbreaks and how how they originated in bats and were passed on to humans by way of wild animals, civet cats and camels, respectively. So bats, though, are uh, often the force that feeds deep forests, like in Indonesia, where they distribute seeds in massive swarms that feed off the trees and distribute them everywhere. Can you tell I've been watching a lot of (laughs) National Geographic wild Indonesia lately? So uh, getting rid of the bats would be devastating to still untouched forests, the few still remaining virgin and uh, uh, forests 
they're free of deforestation in any way. So if the problem is deforestation, can China just simply stop? What would happen to the Chinese economy if it simply stopped the market practices that it had been engaging in, which led to the pandemic? Yeah, I think all of us are going to become experts on pangolins by the end of this uh, pandemic. Um, <laughs> I, and I should add, I, I read a study last night. I don't know if this is definitive. You know, we're all, none, none of us are natural scientists. That a new study from Hong Kong suggests more conclusively that it does come from Malaysian pangolins. Um, you know, who knows? Um, what I mean, I think China is in this game right now where uh, outsiders are kind of speculating: Are they actually this massive economic force to be reckoned with? Um, that is going to take over the world, or are they actually in a? Pro do they have their own problems, right? Are they in their own crisis? And if so, I mean, if they're in their own crisis of sort of, um, you know, kind of running out of steam after this massive takeoff starting in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, then it explains why they are expanding into the rest of the world and they're looking for outlets for all this capital that's been built up within China, right? So a lot of the story for how the Wuhan virus. Sorry, uh, the uh, the coronavirus spread from Wuhan to the rest of the world comes from these international business connections, um, which I I didn't know about specifically, but wasn't surprised to learn about. For instance, that they invest a lot in these infrastructure projects in Iran, um, and that they sent a lot of Chinese and engineers and and, and business people back and forth between Iran. Um, and Iranians would also travel back and forth between China, and that's the speculation of how it first arrived in Iran, right? Um, and there's a lot of uh, international links between Germany um, and France and automakers in the United States and Japan and, and Wuhan specifically uh, as an automaker capital hub. So I think that the question in terms of why will they stop expanding economically is it runs counter to their entire project, right? That they have, they are constantly, the, the Chinese government is obsessed with growth. Growth is how they legitimize themselves. Um, in a lot of ways, they're saying, you know, Whereas we foreigners would say, like, how can you live with this repression? You can't use the internet. You can't uh, say you can't criticize the government. The bargain that the government, I think, is trying to present to the average uh, Chinese citizen is, you know, we're in a position where, yeah, freedom of speech and all that stuff can come later, but we're in a position where we need to grow, and we will we will deliver you a better way of life than you had 10, 20 years ago. Um, and so the Chinese government, in order to stay in power, sees itself as needing to grow and needing to do things like. Um, they're not necessarily deforesting uh, uh, Indonesia directly, right? But they are buying the timber from in these outsourced companies. Um, uh, I, have to, I have to admit my family was also way back involved in uh, shipping timber to, to China. The explanation was that China had run out of their own forests a long time ago. Uh, so they were tapping into forest reserves uh, in the United States and South America. This is all back in the 1980s. So now I can only imagine that they're looking for uh, even further afield frontiers or uh, sort of un untouched frontiers to uh, extract natural resources. I think that they are not going to be able to stop, and I think their their approach is going to be to try to return things back to normal. I already saw, you know, studies this morning, reports this morning that the government is concerned about meeting their four to five percent growth goals for this year. You know, they're not they're not really rethinking things. Um, the one thing I've, I've, I was going to mention earlier, by the way, that I think might complicate things for the American audience is that. Um, in Asia itself, in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, they are also calling this the Wuhan virus. Um, and you think that's counterintuitive because, you know, we in America, we think, oh, white Americans shouldn't be calling this the Wuhan virus. That's racist, right? But it's, um, and that obviously has its own dynamic, which we previously discussed. But within Asia itself, there are all really complicated, tense feelings between people who, you know, are ethnically related, right, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China. And they, they, you know, in Taiwan, it's, it's like they're not, they're not keeping it a secret that they are upset at the PRC and upset at China for, uh, for this. So uh, that, I think that kind of throws a wrench in our sort of simple binary between, you know, East and West. But the, the politics of naming this are complicated all throughout the world. Uh, you also point out that the pangolin is small and found across Asia and Africa. Its hard scales, which make up 20% of its body weight, have been digested in China for centuries, with overall consumption soaring in recent decades. According to customers and vendors, pangolin scales and meat can be used as a form of medicine to cure a variety of ailments. It is said to nourish the kidneys, but primarily to invigorate men's sexual performance and bolster female beauty. Do we have a pandemic because of what many might dismiss as folk or traditional medicine beliefs, or by framing it 
in that way do we miss a bigger picture about how the market spreads around the world by imposing our Western medicine perspective of dismissiveness towards traditional or folk medicine, do we miss something in understanding the virus? Right. So I point, I, I brought this in because, like you said, there are there is a a very dismissive way to say that, uh, you know, like who, who you know who the hell these pangolins, right? This is this is barbaric. Uh, this is their fault. Um, and I don't disagree with that. But a lot of people in China also don't disagree with that. The majority of people in China. Uh, through polls and polling numbers and just surveys suggest that they don't eat wildlife. They think wildlife should be protected or if not outright banned. There is this practice that you could say is particular, you know, perhaps this is particular, but you could probably think of analogies elsewhere around the world of the very elite treating wildlife consumption as a form of conspicuous consumption, right? And this idea of traditional Chinese medicine might be the particular form it takes in China, but I'm sure if you kind of dig deep into these sort of uh, elite underground societies all around the world, they have their own particular traditions that um, might might be sort of unscientific or, um, you know, irrational uh, from, from our perspective. Uh, so what I wanted to kind of point out in this article is that uh, if you kind of break it down more specifically, who is eating pangolin? It's not your average middle-class, working-class Chinese person. It's usually the elite who are seeing it as a form of you know, they might ostensibly say, oh, it's for traditional Chinese medicine purposes. But for a lot of times, it's conspicuous consumption, right? They just want to show off that they can buy the most expensive off-menu item um, for their guests or for themselves when they have a good day. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, I, what I, and you might, be want, you might be getting to this next, that it is therefore interesting that this breaks out in Wuhan, of all places. Because Wuhan is not really a city that I would typically associate with uh, exotic food and cosmopolitan cuisine and global connections with the rest of the world. Um, it made a lot more sense for SARS to break out in the Guangdong, uh, the Pearl River Delta, right, spanning Hong Kong and the Guangdong province, because in hindsight and in popular culture, that's kind of been seen as this interesting, perfect storm of both, you know, you have rich, it's one, it is probably the richest part of China, if not Shanghai's up there, um, and it's very globally connected. So there is a way in which, you know, this, Expensive elite food combines with international connections creates this perfect storm, right? Wuhan for the typical Chinese person does not really connote any of that. It's a it's a it's a it's a big city, but it's an industrial city. It's an inland city. It's not it's not one that you typically think has connections to, um, you know, Iran and Munich, right? Um, so uh, I think if you break this down in terms of why this particular place, why at this particular time, uh, then we could kind of pierce through this. Um, stereotype of Chinese culture and say, well, there's actually like this particular class of people and are doing it at, in the 21st century because of all the massive economic gains that China has made the last 20, 30 years. 20, 30 years ago, I can't imagine that the pangolin trade was, I mean, we know that statistics show that pangolin prices and the amount of pangolins killed and eaten in China were, were much lower in the 1990s, um, even compared to the 2010s. So this is really a product of history as much as it is about, you know, culture. Why, though, why is that desire for status the market's fault? Why can't we just simply blame this on a few far too wealthy individuals or their class and its right. unethical behavior and immorality, its selfishness and ego? Why blame it on the market and not just blame it on the few individuals who, you know, the market would argue they're the ones who are the bad guys? Well, why, why is it so valuable in the first place? It's sort of... Uh what are those called? Veblen goods, right? The ones, these, these are goods that their value is uh, derived precisely because of how expensive they are. So precisely because of, um, you know, as, as these things get more expensive and rarer, um, that's, they become more desirable by, by this elite class. Um, and, and I think one of the points I want to make in the article is like the pangolin thing is, uh, we don't, we don't want to down and play it too much because there is obviously this ecological humans messing around where they probably should be messing around element to all of this. But uh, beyond where it came from in the particular, uh, the sort of particular natural scientific explanation, what I kind of find interesting about the, the pandemic is some places stopped it pretty quickly. Other places did not stop it. And it also spread it, spread, spread, it spread uh, incredibly quickly around the world in probably the most, probably the fastest and most extensive way than any of these pandemics that ever happened in history. Um, I mean, that has to be the case. Uh, and why was it? Why were people not taking the right measures to stop it? Right, we know in the United States it's because 
precisely because it rubs up against these economic imperatives to let the market decide everything. Um, so I would say that, you know, you can't, you know, we can we can debate about whether or not the the virus comes as a result is capitalism's fault. Like I, I you know, one one doesn't want to go that crazy. Well, maybe some others would argue that, right? Like uh, I, you know, I, I listened to your interview with Rob Ross, for instance, and we all apparently we were all have discovered a lot of interesting ideas about um, from that from that perspective. We're all reading that literature now. Uh, but even if we put that aside, I think the spread of the pandemic is very clearly something that's almost identical or synonymous with where, where, what, what are the contours of the trajectories around the world where the market is kind of left unimpeded by governments that are able to subordinate the market, right? We have kind of much stronger welfare states in East Asia that are willing to um, say like, hey, we're, we're not going to make money for a few weeks here, but in the long run, that's good. Um, versus in, obviously in the United States, where they're, un, where they're only they're only going to take that strategy as a last resort. But this pangolin trade, I just want to get back to this for a second. Yeah, is it, sure. it, it's it, and the only reason I'm bringing it up is for a bigger systemic question. This pangolin, yeah. this pangolin trade is illegal. So is mm-hmm. the pandemic then the result of crime, criminal acts? Can we not blame this on governments, on the market, right. as much as those who play outside the rules of the government, government and market? Uh, that's a good question. I think the answer is probably that even though it is illegal, you still see 14, 12 ton shipments of it coming into China. So how how illegal is it, you know? And this pangolin, you know, this mythical pangolin, right, where this virus began in the seafood market, I imagine the seafood market is just like any normal market. So the fact that it's not, you know, it's not being sold on some, you know, under the bridge, dark street corner, like we think of other illegal commodities, right? Is it's kind of out in the open. It's this open secret that you can buy this if you know where to go. Um, and if you know, I don't know anymore. But like, let's say a year ago, if I had gone to China and worked really hard to find the pangolin, eat pangolin, I could find it. Uh, it's it's kind of this illegal thing that's everywhere. Uh, my understanding is that therefore the government officials are willing to um, allow some form of traffic sort of, uh, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right, that uh, that they're not really that committed to stamping it out because uh, they, they themselves are elites and the sort of economic elites and the political elites, they sort of help each other out. Um, so we could get into like perhaps a, I mean, I've read studies about how there's a certain um, level of corruption that is in the regulation of wildlife in China. Um, and that's, so that's probably, uh, it probably is, uh, again, I just going, going back to like the significance of Wuhan, right? It's not, Wuhan is just this typical, as I say in the article, a second tier city. So the fact that pangolins are appearing in Wuhan, I think is, it was surprising to find out um, because it's not a city that is um, associated with international, tri- well, it is now, but it hasn't historically been associated with exotic food from overseas. So the fact that it's there of all places, I think, suggests that it was actually far more, um, it was ubiqu- far more ubiquitous. Um, and it just happened to break out in this one city among many other cities that it probably could have broken out in. So will the Chinese Communist Party take this opportunity to point out the evils of capitalism? I mean, is this like a, a, a kind of a, you know, there's, there's, I keep trying to find yeah. uh, silver linings in this. And I know that there aren't any, but maybe in the long run yeah. there might be. And uh, so is there any chance that this will lead the Communist Party in China to actually act more like a communist party? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, they have never... They've always kind of talked about how they are in the last 20, 30 years, right, that they have kind of taken this measured approach. They don't say we're cap. Obviously, they don't say we're capitalist. They talk about how they're working within the tradition of socialism and communism and that part of the socialist tradition, which I think is not entirely wrong, is the development of the economy, development of productive forces, um, you know, making people rich. And in order to get to socialism, you have to go through these stages of getting rich first. Um, I think the silver lining, though, that... uh, the silver lining, I think, is actually pretty um, clear in some parts of the world. The fact that South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore have done such a good job, um, and we, there's also debates about is that the government, is that the people, is that the institutions, but the fact that they've done a good job reflects the fact that these are all the parts of the world that were most directly hit by uh, SARS in 2003, and therefore they were prepared for the pandemic. 
much more prepared, obviously, than the United States. Now, that doesn't obviously prevent these pandemics, these coronaviruses, uh, these sort of wildlife viruses from uh, reappearing in the future that, you know, you'll have to talk to somebody else, like, a, a, you know, someone more uh, knowledge about like the natural science to, to, for that question. But in terms of is this something that humans could actually deal with? I think some governments have proven you can deal with it if you take the right measures. Now, you could say it's absurd that we have to actually perhaps live the rest of our life um, getting ready to quarantine and wear masks and test everyone every five years from now on. Um, that's that's not ideal, right? But I think the, I guess the point is that what has happened in the United States is it's natural, it's a natural made, but it's also a human made disaster, right? And as I'm sure you've talked about for weeks at this point, right? It didn't have to be this way. Um, and there are mistakes along the way. And it's not just, I think, a Republican versus Democrat thing, which uh, it does, it is to some degree, of course. It's also just a more general sense that the United States, I think, American politicians or just as guilty of this American media of kind of thinking this cannot happen here. Um, and and also participating in the um, stripping away the types of institutions that would have provided a better safeguard against it. Um, so, and that idea that you you also write about that the the idea of American exceptionalism and how how that also contributed to uh, the shortcomings yeah. of our response to the coronavirus. You write the novel coronavirus initially emerged and spread across the world through market activities, and our ability to tame it now will be decided by the degree to which we can subordinate market logics to our own survival, rather than vice versa. Do market logics at this point work at odds with our survival? Can't we have a market that considers its potentially deadly impact on human life. Can't we have a market that makes it profitable, makes it immensely profitable to have humans survive? Yeah, I think this is like the contradiction at the heart of the history of capitalism, um, that capitalism, if, if, capitalism if, cap, if the business classes are kind of left unchecked, they will probably, the most profitable short-term strategy is to just kind of make as much money as possible in the short term at whatever cost and obvious and exhaust the lifespan and quality of life for most of the rest of us. Um, and that'll be self-sabotaging from their perspective. They won't have a workforce. They won't have a population. They won't have a market to sell their goods. So, you know, this has been the struggle in the United States history between sort of unchecked capitalism in the 19th century where, you know, lifespans were short and health quality of health was much lower than you have this this uh, resistance and fight in the creation of the welfare state of the, much of the 20th century, which was not meant to stop capitalism, but just to make capitalism healthier and to save capitalism from itself, right? If you have things like social security, uh, greater insurance, uh, public education, then this will lead to, you could say, it's instead of a short term, it's more of a long term focus. And I think what's happened in the last few decades, um, if I could you know, uh, just kind of speculate uh, without being an expert has been the the, America, the American economy has been kind of returning to the short-term focus on extrapolating, extracting as much riches as possible um, at the expense of sort of long-term concerns, probably because so much of the, you know, the healthy workforce that Americans needed for much of the 20th century is now overseas, right? So as so many companies kind of shift their manufacturing overseas and turn the American workforce into basically more of a service workforce, all these measures in terms of like keeping the workforce healthy and investing in public education uh, and making sure that people live longer is pr probably less of a concern than, than it was, let's say, the 40s and 50s when it was expected that Americans will kind of power the factories uh, of America. So I think America, what I've seen what I, what I kind of think is happening is like America is, there's different types of capitalism, right? America is returning to a type of capitalism that's much more focused on the short term over the long term, much more focused on just kind of extracting rents out of uh, using political power rather than expanding the pie for everyone. Um, and we've, we've seen with this coronavirus is this very bizarre situation where, you know, other countries are using, let's say, they're, they're being much more efficient, right? They're using institutions and technology and innovation, perhaps they're invasive technologies, but they're using that as a way to um, help save lives and also kind of save people's jobs. In America, we're kind of taking the most, the bluntest strategy possible, just kind of throwing human lives to, in front of the problem and refusing to use, you know, innovation and technology, you know, testing, better masks, um, all the sorts of uh, precautionary measures that other governments took. Uh, so in a sense, we're kind of we're going backwards. We're the we're the least innovative country when it comes to dealing with this virus, precisely because of the sort of short term, um, the short term perspective of uh, the political and the business classes, whoever you want to pin the blame on. Uh, uh, 
Uh, and just really inter- quickly in terms of exceptionalism, I feel like if I had written this article one week later, the most obvious example is you know this remarkable 180 that's happened this last week over face masks in the American media that, uh, like everyone else, I, I, I was also hearing the messages in January, like, don't, don't worry about face masks, they don't work, even though um, they are quite universally mandated in, in East Asian countries dealing with the virus. And now it seems like every single day there's five new op-eds in the Times and the Post and uh, you know the CNN saying, like, actually, maybe we were wrong about this face mask thing. And uh, I can't help but wonder, like, why did Americans think that face masks don't work and Americans don't need face masks, even though much of the rest of the world dealing with this virus believed in face masks and could actually see the result that face masks worked? Yeah, that's really an amazing thing. And I tried to actually find one online last night and yeah. they're pretty difficult to find yeah. online uh, although a remarkable number of people in my neighborhood own them uh, but they're yeah. all, they're all South Asian so okay. you know uh, you... My, my, my recommendation is I think studies show that cloth is a huge just cloth a piece of cloth right um, if you could obviously if you could make one with a sewing machine that'd be great if you could just like tie one around your mouth and nose that itself is already you know knocking out two thirds of the potential, you know, aerosols and droplets that could be entering your mouth. So I would recommend that to all your listeners. Just put a piece of cloth around your mouth and nose. And I've seen these ones that are made of neoprene, and neoprene is such an environmentally destructive chemical yeah. to begin with. Right. And I can't imagine what those things smell like. I just know mm. that sounds it's awful. Yeah, so cl- con-, con cloth, I would say, you know, most natural, simplest, and, you know, it right. works. You write the spread of the virus and its attendant horror stories has been accompanied by articles about the super-rich chartering private jets to fly overseas into disaster bunkers in Indiana, South Dakota. Gwyneth Paltrow documented her escape to Paris via Instagram, jokingly referring to her role in Contagion, where her character was the one who spread the virus from Hong Kong to the U.S. We've seen pictures of David Geffen's yacht out at sea, where he's safe from from the virus. What impact will that flaunting of wealth have on the media, which pre-virus celebrated such wealth. Do you think that we're going to have this change in this kind of glorification of the wealth of celebrities post-virus? Well, in David Geffen's defense, he did say, stay stay safe, everyone, in his Instagram (laughs) post. Yes, on my yacht. Yeah. I don't know, man. The more more I follow American politics, and I perhaps like... A lot of other people, for my mental health, try have tried to avoid corporate media um, for a while, but you know, you, you can't avoid it, and you can't, uh, you can't, um, especially if you're following politics in the election years. I'm really not sure if the American media understands how out of touch they are, um, and how the way that they portray, um, you know, certain politicians as kind of, you know impossible you know they're the way that they talk to they talk about populist values you know both you know on the left and the right you know they don't really understand that the rest of the country actually agrees with those politicians and they do feel like they've been given a raw deal and uh and that celebrity worship is uh you know that they i think the celebrity worship is a byproduct of the media itself and uh i don't know if it's going to penetrate into their brains but they might be a little bit more sensitive you would think 2008 would have done it but i don't think that made much of a lasting impact. I, I do hope that for most Americans watching this, they are at least having conversations amongst themselves. Why is it that, um, you know, why is it that all these NBA players, why is it that uh, all these movie actors um, and uh, politicians and, te- you know, news anchors, why are they getting the test when I can't get a test, right? Why are we the ones who are kind of being told, uh, stop your life, you know, um, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your mental health, you're going to probably, uh, you and your family are going to suffer indoors. Um, and that's a precautionary measure for you because you don't have a test, um, whereas everyone else gets the test. And I mean, I think the thing that's underrated, but more of us are realizing is what the test provided is really freedom, right? The sort of mental, mental health freedom of knowing that you don't have to worry all the time whether or not you're sick. Uh, that's the attitude, the sort of attitude that we're all, we all have now, I assume, is that uh, we just have to assume at all times that we could be sick. And we're constantly, I don't know about you, I'm constantly thinking is this sore throat at the beginning? Is this, you know, is this um, weird, you know, I, I ate something the other day and I had this weird aftertaste in my mouth. Is this the beginning of losing my sense of flavor and smell, you know? Um, and so I think we're all just kind of feeling imprisoned by our own fear that we might have the virus. And what the test would give us is that sense of 
security. I mean, even if the test was positive, at least we would know it and we could treat it and we could look up and we could self-quarantine knowing that this is what we need to do and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now I think precisely because it's so, it is this kind of invisible unknown thing where people are not happy with, I mean, they're just like mentally, they're just like not happy with um, their day-to-day lives, constantly living in fear. And that perhaps also, uh, makes them a little bit more receptive to sort of uh, not conspiracy theories, but this sense of like, you know, sort of old-fashioned theories like that. It's, it's in the air everywhere, and like you, you can't see it because it's this, this invisible killer. And um, you know, I, I hope people are channeling this this rage and frustration at the proper um, at the proper objects and targets. Like not, and it's not necessarily one politician, although you know. That, that certainly didn't help, but it's more broadly a system that made this country radically unprepared uh, for something like this, um, you know, regardless of which party was in charge. So globalization was certainly a contributing factor, especially to the spread of the pandemic. But without globalization as it exists today, don't we fall into a grim globe of poverty? I mean, it, it doesn't the global economy collapse if we try to rein in globalization? Yeah, I don't think, yeah, so I think that's the fear of all of this, right? That um, that American politicians who have been kind of condemning globalization for a while are gonna use this politically as an opportunity to incite xenophobia and nationalism, which could have most obviously sort of deadly military consequences. But I do think more generally, like globalization uh, thus far has made many people rich, has also made many people poor. But uh, from the standpoint of the Americans and the, you know, the Euro America, it's been this weird process of, you know, the rich getting rich and the rest of us kind of staying in place after a sort of initial burst. But globalization has meant for the rest of the world, not deindustrialization and not the financialization and hollowing out of the real economy. It's actually been this real gift to a lot of the rest of the world. Um, East Asia and other parts of, uh, primarily East Asia has been like the biggest recipient, but a lot of, it's provided potential economic opportunities for parts of Southeast Asia, South Asia, Latin America, Africa. Um, so I, I think that there is a way, you know, I mean, I, I think we should look for ways for the international economy to reshape the international economy instead of turn away from it, I guess I would say. Um, and the problem with globalization, and I think this is also a messaging problem within the American left, is that we tend to think of globalization as just a spatial, right? So it's a, it's a geographical category, when really the problem is that it was a, it was a very class-based project of allowing um, capital to move around the world, but not really looking, but pitting labor against from country to country, from region to region, against each other, right? So there's solidarity among among capital and the business classes, but there is no solidarity among the sort of middle class and the working class around the world. So I I, I would say that um, I don't know if I don't think I can't even imagine what a world of ending globalization would look like, given all these interdependencies that we have these days. Um, I do think that if globalization is to survive in a in the way that we want it, right? We have to rethink how globalization takes place rather than reject it altogether. We have been speaking with historian Andrew Liu. He wrote the N Plus One magazine article, Chinese Virus World Market, the best safeguard against the novel coronavirus is the ability to voluntarily withdraw oneself from capitalism. You can find that article at nplusonemag.com. By the way, that withdrawing oneself from capitalism is a pretty difficult thing to do, yeah, as Andy exactly. points out throughout the article. One last question for you, Andy, yeah. and our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. It's always one or the other. You write, the world has changed. The many li- ties between Wuhan and the world today suggest a terrifying reality that should be clear to xenophobes and liberals alike. A viral outbreak in any one of these locations, it appears could easily wind up touching the lives of hundreds of millions of others. Could the next Wuhan be Zhengzhou, Dayton, Bangalore, or Dar es Salaam? So this is incredibly frightening because it could reinforce xenophobes' fear of everyone that is the other, and it might upset liberals who want a world that at least offers unlimited travel and access to goods globally, things that are contributing factors to climate change and to the outbreak of this pandemic. As the New York Times reported, authoritarian leaders around the world are instituting government crackdowns that citizens were, are, uh, will, are fear that will 
become permanent, like in Hungary, where the government of Viktor Orban has cracked down, and we're going to be speaking to our correspondent in Budapest about that tomorrow. Mm. The New York Times had an opinion column that argued in the face of global disaster, we all become socialists. Do we Mm. also become xenophobes? Will this virus, will this, in your opinion, bring us together or tear us apart in seeing that interconnectedness that caused the virus? I think that's our goal. That's our political goal is to do, is not to tear us apart, but to bring us together. Uh, I think up until now, we haven't been very successful at that messaging and the the dominant political classes and the media, et cetera, are not, uh, they haven't really provided us a reason why we should think internationally, uh, in terms of international solidarity. Um, if anything, they've kind of provided this, I think this sort of, they kind of see like, you know, the phrases like the Chinese virus as a sort of like, you know, quaint racism, if there was such a thing, right? There's this quaint racism, we should stop being racist, but they haven't really provided the average middle-class, working-class citizen a reason to think um, in terms of solidarity with the working class and the middle classes of the rest of the world. So, you know, that's our goal. That's, that's a project we should be taking on. I just fear some weird combination of xenophobic socialism, because I've seen how that has played out in the past. Yeah, I think that's I think that's possible. I think that's also um, perhaps um, a reason to look for 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 the existing left to look for those international connections and for people who are able to speak to multiple audiences around the world. I think uh, you know, I, like I'm sure many of your listeners, I was a big Sanders fan, um, but I was also like I think a lot of other listeners kind of frustrated that his points of reference were not really the whole world, right? There was really uh, parts of American history and uh, parts of Western Europe. But there's more There's more to the world, obviously, than that. Andy, I really enjoyed our conversation. This article is fantastic. I'll keep looking for your work online. Uh, Andy is currently working on a book that is going to be called, possibly, T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. And when that does come out, we definitely want to have you back on the show. Expect us to be bugging you in the future, Andy. I really enjoyed our talk today. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate the invitation. Take care. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Cherry. This week's question from L is: What are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins five. This is hell. Subvertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words "This is hell." As we are all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that yes, this is hell. You can leave your answers to this week's question from L at our Facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com you can find those this is hell advertising stickers at our website this is hell.com when you click on support which is where you can find all of our swag including trucker cap t-shirt tote bags coffee mugs and the this is hell guided 21st century flash drive and by the way like I was saying earlier, this, those This Is Hell advertising stickers, they look fantastic on your face mask that you will need to be wearing every time you go outside in the very near future. So order your masks and your advertising stickers and make certain everyone around you knows how you feel about this It's pandemic. Alex, do you have any more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. But first thing, let me just interject. If you're eating hot dogs from Home Depot, you can't criticize anyone from eating anything else. <laughs> do you and, eat hot dogs from Home Depot? Yeah. Yeah. All do, the time. Have you ever had the tamale? I love a Depot dog. Have you ever had the uh, tamale in a bun? Yeah. Those aren't for, I don't know. That's like a bun in a bun. No thanks, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with uh, hot dogs. Uh, you're not the only one. Sean Hop <laughs> raves about the hot dog. He's a vegetarian. He raves about the hot dogs. It's the only time he eats meat at Home Depot. Damn. Uh, okay. What are you wiping down? What you wiping down? Garrett says, and this is via Twitter. Garrett says, my sackcloth tunic for my daily lament. Yeah. Uh, Pearl J says, my husband. One, he has one of those essential jobs, so he has to go to work every day. The foyer is our airlock. He has to strip naked, throw his clothes in a hamper, and go directly to the bathroom to take a silkwood shower. Items that routinely leave the house stay in the foyer. Hmm, foyer, huh? Hmm, privileged people or something. <laughs> Just joking. And then, uh, finally, I have a vestibule like a normal American. And then uh, finally, unsettling queer says, the outside of the wipes container. Ugh. What you wipe in? What you wipe in? Uh, via, uh, this Facebook, uh, Jeffy D says, the cash I get from mugging old people, those wrinkled up germ sponges. 
Courtly A says, sink faucet handles when your hands are dirty when you turn the water on. <laughs> Dennis H. Oh, uh, and finally, uh, Andrew S. says, Bofa. Hmm. I wonder if I'm supposed to ask a question after Bofa. <laughs> Not going to play into that, Andrew S. No. That is all the questions. Uh, that is all the responses to the question from hell. Uh, you have one more day, so we'll leave them by uh, tomorrow's show. And then we're going to be announcing the winner on tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at This Is Hell. Uh, Todd. Uh, Todd Williams is reporting back to us. We haven't talked to him in a long time. I'm really excited to get him back on the show. Todd Williams, correspondent, is going to be talking to us from Budapest, Hungary. And then uh, Jeffy D remembers existential crises in the good old days. Tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream and hear all the answers, the rest of the answers to the question from Ellen to find out if you have one. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Andrew Liu, our guest today. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing The Planet's on Fire with a Virus. So yes, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Oh, hey, Chuck, I uh, left a whole bunch of beers on your table.